This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Cats at Night. Now, here's John Katsimatidis. Welcome to the John Katsimatidis Cats at Night show. John is away momentarily, but we're going to hold down the fort, right, guys? Absolutely. So here in the studio, we have a common sense Democrat, Judge Weinberg, although some people are saying you're starting to come to our side, Judge. I'm always in the moderate center. That's where I am. But you said something interesting that you've never changed your political views, yet you're now being accused of being on the right, on the right. But you've always been a Democrat. I still am a Democrat, will always be a Democrat. I'm trying to bring my party back to the center in common sense. So it's the party that's changed, not the person. Also here in studio is Ed Cox. He was a former state GOP chair for just uh, only a decade. Only a decade. Only a decade. Yeah, absolutely. So we got a lot. In store for everybody today, we've got a great show. We will be speaking to Dr. Mark Siegel. You don't want to miss it. He's always very funny and informative. Gordon Chang, he's got some interesting news regarding, of course, China. David Rubenstein, he has a great new book out. You don't want to miss it. Of course, it's Friday, Larry Kudlow. But first on the line with us is former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Welcome back to Cats and Night, Governor Cuomo. Hello, Lydia. Hello, Judge. Hello, Ed. I'm funny, too. Why did you say I'm, I'm funny in it? Absolutely. <laughs> oh. Absolutely. <laughs> so let me, Governor, I want to ask you, did you happen to see President Biden's speech the other night? Yes. And as a, as a fellow Democrat, I have to tell you, I was very offended by his one-sided partisanship. It was supposed to be a presidential address, and he's supposed to be bringing the country together. And I thought it was an outrageous performance. What were your thoughts about that? You know, Judge, I, I heard your uh, opening comments, and obviously I've, I've followed your career for a long time. Uh, I understand your point about the Democratic Party right now, uh, and uh, your point is bringing it back to the center. You have a hyper-partisanship on both sides of the aisle. Uh, who went first? Uh, who's reacting to whom? I think you can argue. But there's a hyper-partisanship on both sides. Yes, uh, and I think it's also on the Democratic side. And I think that's what you heard uh, from President Biden. Uh, was it a more uh, partisan address than you normally hear from the White House Oval Office, an official address? Uh, yes, it was. But that's where we are, Judge. You know, it's not a good place, Governor. And you see, oh. Congressman Clyburn just came out. I just saw it on the news. He's saying that the United States is the same as Hitler's Germany in the 30s and the 40s. He just came out and said that. Can you believe that? Clyburn's supposed to be a moderate. It's such dangerous rhetoric from both sides. Why would he say that? Yeah, but look, because the temperature is high on both sides, we're coming down to the election day. Uh, Everybody's anxious. The stakes are very high nationwide as well as locally. Uh, And I think that is being reflected in the behavior of, uh, parties on all sides. And it is it is dangerous. Uh, but let's be honest, January 6th uh, was dangerous, right? So, uh, agree, agree. It was a bad, it was a bad and stupid uh, thing to do for the country and polit- political suicide for 
for that, you know, faction of the, of the Republicans. I agree with you. Yeah, but, but yeah. Uh, Ed Cox here, uh, Governor, but the, the people care about what's happening to them in the moment. They mm-hmm. care about inflation. They care about it's a recession coming up. They're seeing some people starting to get laid off. Crime. Now. Interest rates are going up. They're, uh, they're, they're mortgaging, but they may have to renew it at a higher interest rate. That's what they're concerning them at this point. And that, that, those cut for Republicans at this point. And the Democrats just have this sort of, oh, there's a democracy is at risk. No, democracy has always been contentious. That's part of it. And, uh, and when you start into hyper, uh, talking about Hitler comparison to Hitler, uh, that means you don't really have an argument mm-hmm. that appeals to the people that are going to be voting. Yeah, no, I hear you, Ed. Uh, I hear you. If, and I think nas- nationwide, uh, as a Democrat, I am concerned about uh, the upcoming election uh, on a national level. Uh, you talk about the House, you talk about the Senate. Uh, I'm concerned because you're right. The Nationally, the interests have turned towards crime and inflation. Uh, I've said I believe the Democratic Party is tongue-tied on crime, and I don't understand why. I think they're afraid of the extreme left uh, and the rhetoric of uh, uh, criminal justice, uh, because after post-George Floyd, there was uh, such outrage, which was justifiable. But uh, it's gone so far that the Democrats don't even want to talk about keeping the public safe. And I think that's a mistake because I think they're disconnected. Uh, Lydia uh, has has made that point often, as has the judge. I think here in New York, uh, the Republicans are more out of step because, yes, you have crime uh, and, yes, you have the inflation. But you have a Republican candidate, Ed, who is out of touch on every major social issue and value of New Yorkers. This is a a pro-choice state. This is the first big state to pass marriage equality. This is the state that passed the best gun control law in the United States of America, banning assault weapons. Uh, And to run a candidate who is pro-life, Zeldin, who's against gun safety, gun control, assault weapons, uh, who is against uh, uh, marriage equality, which the Supreme Court may take up, uh, who's an election denier. You know, he's counter to probably 75 percent of the public on those issues. You know, Governor Hochul tried to do something about it, and she had the ads that were going, abortion, 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 Trump, abortion, 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 Trump. Now, I, I was running the super PAC for Zeldin, and we started talking about crime, crime, inflation, taxes, things that people really cared about. And guess what? Our numbers started going up and their numbers started going down. It, and now she's shifted to trying to talk about crime and she's looking very awkward. She's talking about guns, but not what's about what's happening to people in the street. But Zeldin has said he is not going to touch abortion. We know Zeldin doesn't oh, have the power to that, overturn that, marriage that was, that equality. Was a coup de, that that's was a coup de grace. He looked a, in the I, camera and said, I will not, nor could I 
changed the laws in New York State with respect to abortion. And, and, that, and his pers- that, that wiped out $10 million. And so, Governor Cuomo, I want to bring up something to you. So CNN, they put out this like political opinion, I guess, article, and it says, here's the title. New York Democrats are bracing for stunning election day losses, and they already have a fall guy. Guess who the fall guy is, according to this article? Mayor Adams. Because according to this article, Mayor Adams overhyped the issue of crime and played into the right wing narratives in ways that may have helped set the party up for disaster on Tuesday. So for the mere simple fact that Mayor Adams, like you, like other common sense Democrats, are acknowledging the fact that people are afraid that a 43 year old woman just yesterday was was raped by a guy with a rap sheet a mile long. He had 25 arrests, several sexual assaults. A woman was shot execution style by her husband just less than 24 hours after he appeared before a judge. All of a sudden, now you guys, like Mayor Adams and the other common sense Democrats, have played into the palm of the right wing wingers, you know, the master manipulators. What do you have to say to that? Yeah, that's why I don't watch CNN. <laughs> <laughs> well, well but up, up, see, he is funny. He yeah. is funny. That's right. Anybody who says you're not funny, governor's uh, wrong. Let uh, the record be clear. No, but I want to hear because just because people are saying the truth now, all of a sudden they're right wing operatives or they're being manipulated. I want to hear what the governor says. Yeah, no, look, I I agree. I believe the Democratic Party has been tongue tied on the issue of crime. Uh, it's not that it's not that Mayor Adams has to raise it or anybody has to raise it. They believe it. I went out on the street uh, for my podcast. I interviewed uh, people on the street. What's the main issue for you this election day? Crime, 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 fear of crime. It was all across the board. Uh, so that's a bunch of hogwash. Uh, and Ed is right. I think the Republicans are winning the message on crime and inflation in this state. The Democrats do win the argument on choice, marriage equality, guns, and election denier. I know that's what Zeldin said. He looked in the camera. But that's also what the Supreme Court nominees said, right? They weren't going to touch Roe v. Wade. And he can't change the law practically. He can't change it. He said he's going to appoint a health commissioner who is pro-life. You can do a lot with regulations of clinics. Uh, and funding. So uh, I think people, New Yorkers, are going to reject someone who is pro-life against marriage equality. How can you be against marriage equality in this state? Governor, How can you is he against marriage equality? Wait, wait, but Governor, let me, let me, as, a fellow, as a fellow Democrat who's, who voted for your father and, and for you, let me, let me say this. Stepping back as objectively as I can, Anything when you keep talk when people not you but when people keep talking about January sixth election deniers abortion I do not believe in the times that we're living in now we walk in the streets of New York we ride the subways the fear epidemic that's out there and it's justifiable I think that wins you combine that with inflation I think that wins I think those other issues are collateral to the essential concerns of the people and I think Ed Cox has the better of the argument and you're a great politician. Been enormously successful, both for your father and for yourself. And I think 
in your heart of hearts, you got to know you'd rather have the other side of the argument on this election. No, but what Cuomo is saying is that Ed is correct, that the Republicans are winning on the message. But at the end of the day, I myself, as a woman, I don't want anybody legislating my private parts. And we don't want anybody saying, you can't marry this person, you can't marry that person. And we've expressed that to Lee Zeldin. And and Congressman Zeldin has said that he's not going to touch it. He's not going, and he he legally can't do anything about it. Is there a winning winning issue for The governor is really responsible for taking some of these issues off the table. Marriage equality, you you got it passed through the legislature. Absolutely. I believe the first major state, first of any states to get it actually done the way you should do it through the legislature. And and so it's off the table. It's not an issue here any longer. Same thing with abortion. It's off the table. It's not an issue here. The issue now is crime. And on that, the Republicans uh, have the high ground. Okay, so here let's let's conclude it this way. Uh, the I I will grant you that crime inflation are the ascendant issues, and the Republicans appear more responsive on it. Uh, and I hear you, Judge, on the on the point about those two issues. The social issues, I think you uh, you dismiss wrongfully when you're the governor of the state. To say, don't worry, there's nothing I can do, is just not a fact. What he's saying is practically, politically, I couldn't change the law because you have Democrats in the Assembly and Democrats in the Senate. But you know what? If I'm a woman uh, concerned about choice, that doesn't give me a lot of comfort that don't worry, the Assembly Democrats and the Assembly Senate won't change their mind. Uh, you're not talking about the, the most stable legislative body in the United States, right? Let's, yeah. we, can, we can stipulate consent and agree to that, Governor. Right. right. So he does regulations. He does funding. You have choice on the table. You have marriage equality on the table. You have a Supreme Court that could reverse it. You have guns. Uh, these issues are going to trump on Election Day crime and inflation. Hochul wins. It's tighter than it should have been because of crime and inflation, but the social issues still take Hochul over the top. That's where my money, I'll make a gentleman's wager, <laughs> whoever wants to make it. Governor, you're on. You're on, you're on okay. Governor. And note my dissent from uh, your uh, majority opinion. Okay. <laughs> as as the only woman here, I think what Lee Zeldin is trying to say, because I've spoken to people in his campaign and he himself, I'm pro-life. But he doesn't want to put his belief system on others, because at the end of the day, most Americans, uh, isn't there a poll out that it's like 80 percent believe that it should there should be some sort of legislation on it. It shouldn't be allowed to the ninth month and all these things like that. So that's why even though I am pro-life or it doesn't matter, the bottom line is Zeldin. I'm going to put my money on Zeldin because I think crime at this point, at this moment in time, inflation. I want to be safe walking down the streets. I don't think a guy with 25 arrests with sexual assaults under his belt should be allowed to walk the streets. And that guy who Adam Benningfield, who killed his his wife, Kiara Benningfield, who put the video out on Facebook and less than 24 hours later, after appearing before a judge, he was allowed to go and shoot her execution style in front of her three kids. Those to me are extremely pressing matters that need to be addressed. And the fact that Hochul won't even address it won't even say anything about that the bail reform needs to be reformed that to me is frightening about her i think she's clueless what do you think uh governor cuomo do you think that she's kind of putting her head in the sand this will be my last question i think 
uh, the Democrats, it's not it's just, just New York. This is happening nationwide. That is right. <clears throat> the Democrats are, are tongue-tied. They're nervous about offending the left. There was a strong reaction after George Floyd, which there should have been. Uh, but they're afraid to say criminal justice. Some people have to be in jail. We need more police. And that is going to hurt them on Election Day nationwide. It's going to hurt them in this state. But not to the extent that it overcomes choice, marriage equality, guns. Not in this state. That's about 75% support. And yes, Zeldin can say, I'm not going to touch it. You know what? Uh, That's what Kavanaugh said. And uh, I don't trust, if I'm uh, a, a woman, I would be very nervous trusting my future on choice to the Assembly and the Senate, which are fickle and dysfunctional. Uh, he's the governor of the state. He can do regulations. He can do funding. He can cause a lot of mayhem if he wants. So I think those issues wind up winning, but it's closer than it should have been because of uh, what you're saying about crime and inflation. But Hochul still wins. I'm going to bet Ed and the judge uh, a gentleman's bet. Where are you going to take what us to lunch? Where do we? What do we Where win? Are you us to lunch? What do we win when we win? What do you win when you win? Yeah. Uh, you win a meal at a place <laughs> of your choice. Thank All you. right. <laughs> and we win our city and state back. Well, all right. Well, thank you so much, Governor Cuomo. And this is what's so great about this show. We don't speak in an echo chamber. We like to have differing opinions. When we come back, we'll be speaking with who? Larry Kudlow, right? Larry Kudlow. And I think we got also another special guest on the line. Keep it right here. Cats at Night. It's Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Welcome back to the John Katzmatidis Cats and Night Show. In studio, we have Ed Cox, we have Judge Weinberg, and on the line with and I'm Lydia Serrani. And on the line with us, we have John Katzmatidis and the best economist in the world. That's right, the world, the galaxy, the solar system, Larry Kudlow. Oh. <laughs> Countdown to Tuesday. Countdown to Tuesday. <laughs> Where's Patterson? <laughs> He's hiding. He's hiding. He decided not even to bother showing his face. He's too ashamed. So he stayed home. He said he's literally sick. I love the guy. He's a terrific yeah. man. Yeah. So, John, did you want to ask him, how are the markets going? I just, uh, market. I just live in a far off land. And uh, I just... They gave me a hotel room that's two miles away from the from the uh, hotel lobby. So, what happened with the markets today? I have no clue. Nothing. Yeah, markets were flat. Uh, the jobs numbers were uh, were okay, mixed bag. Uh, non-farm payrolls went up more than expected, but the household survey actually fell. Uh, the unemployment rate went up uh, a couple of ticks. Um, but basically, it was a, you know a very decent number, and it's kind of interesting to me looking at all this stuff. You've had the Fed tightening. Uh, you've had the Fed tightening all year. Uh, the target rate is up four full percentage points. The money supply is uh, tightening. Larry, has it ever tightened as fast as it did in this? Well, pe- let me finish my point, yeah. and we can hash over it. But the the thing is, it doesn't seem to have much impact either on inflation or the economy. Just very interesting. Um, normally, you know, after, let's see, 10 months of Fed tightening, and they've done it in large gulps, 
you would see um, more setback in the employment numbers or a bigger increase in unemployment. That has not happened. And um, regarding inflation, inflation is down, but only a little bit. Uh, and wages are holding up quite well, too. So it's, I think what's going to happen here is uh, today's numbers, you're going to get a, a, a very tough Fed in December. People are talking 50 basis points, but they'll probably have to do 75. I mean, the policy is going to stretch into next year, and we're going to wind up having a double-dip recession. First half of this year, we had a mild recession. Now the economy is rising a little bit. Probably next year, you're going to go into a deeper recession. So hopefully the cavalry coming will begin to change policies right away. They've got to go after they, – they must go after uh, – oil and gas they must go after permitting they must permit drilling they've got to let the refineries expand we've got shortages everywhere this would probably be the number one issue and that would lower the inflation rate and improve the economic outlook and it's funny we've had all these major senate candidates come on our show in the last couple of weeks and every one of them says the same thing let's start by taking the handcuffs off of oil and gas so I hope that's the case. Well, you know, we have, if we don't, they're trying to force a recession, Larry. The America doesn't want the recession. You can see our economy is strong, and they're doing everything possible to force a recession. Yeah, well, that's a tragedy. I would agree with that. Um, that's not the best. They should They should deal with this on the supply side. They should create incentives to uh, drill and create pipelines and so forth build up our supplies of, uh, of energy again. They should also create work incentives. I mean, part of the employment story is we're paying people not to work. Democrats want another big welfare bill with no work requirements in it. And we've got to cut back on the federal spending, and we've got to try to make the Trump tax cuts permanent. So we need supply-side help, uh, and uh, we need uh, oil and gas help. Those are two key things. And we'll know in a couple of days whether they'll have the political uh, legislative power to do it. Larry, that's I the think question. People are angry. I think that I think there's going to be a change because people are angry. What's going on? They're they're really getting angry. The pulse. That's the pulse I get from all the communities. Well, this is the today, November fourth, happens to be the forty second anniversary of Ronald Reagan's victory in 1980. And apart from the fact that I worked for Reagan, I was only 13 years old at the time, uh, Reagan was the quintessential optimist, okay? The quintessential optimist. He didn't want recessions, he wanted growth. He didn't want contractions, he wanted prosperity. He wanted to put people back to work, not take them out of work. Uh, So the Democrats have been very pessimistic in this campaign. I think the Republicans on the whole have been pretty darn optimistic. And I think the country is going to vote for optimism. And that's why I bring in the Reagan. The shadow of Ronald Reagan continues to loom large 42 years ago. Actually, on this show, there are two Reagan alumni. Besides me, there's one other Reagan alumni if he raises his hand. Yeah, that's true. And, uh, you who know, that at, who yeah, was that Cox? who was the other Reagan alumni? Who is it? It's you. Yeah, I was a Reagan alumni. I wasn't you born. Bet. 
You were. <laughs> and we succeeded because of Larry Kudlow's advice. <laughs> because the whole program that was just getting started rested on oil going from $40 a barrel to $100. So I asked this young economist in Stockman's group named Larry Kudlow, who, who knew, knew a lot about economies. He focused on the commodities. And, uh, and you said, no, oil's going down from 40, not up. And, uh, so we held tight and the program just fell of its own weight after about a year. You know, John Katsimatidis, look at oil's creeping back to a hundred now, which is not good. Gasoline prices are starting to creep back up, by the way, in a couple of very key states, including New Hampshire. Um, this is another reason. I mean, if you open the spigots, all right, oil come back down to a profitable level of 50 or 60, even $70. But right now, oil's going north, and that's not a good thing. Especially not for the winter. And John has said, John Katzmatidis, that if Michigan, if that Line 5, if it shuts down, we could see yeah. oil go up to $150 a barrel, which would be devastating for the entire country. So, Larry Kudlow, yes, that would. means we're running out of time. What else do you want to All say right. to the American people? One last push for, for Zeldin. We're going to take our city and country back. Sorry. Lee Zeldin's going to win. The Cavalry's coming. Stay optimistic. America's the greatest country ever was and ever will be. Amen. All right, guys. So we still got a great show for everybody. Keep it right here. We're going to be speaking to David Rubenstein, Gordon Chang, and Dr. Mark Siegel. Keep it right here. Cats at night. Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Welcome back to the John Katzmatidis Cats at Night show. John, are you still there? I am still here. Okay, great. And in studio, we have uh, Judge Judge Weinberg. We have Ed Cox, former state GOP chair, myself, Lydia Serrani. And on the line with us right now, we have David Rubenstein. He just has a he just came out with a great new book. It's called How to Invest Masters on the Craft. Welcome to Cats at Night, David Rubenstein. My my pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, you, Ed Cox, David, you know him, right? Ed Cox here. What makes a good investor? You interviewed the best of them. Well, it's a willingness to go against the grain and willingness to defy conventional wisdom. Obviously, being smart, hardworking helps, and some humility can help because they make mistakes from time to time and they have to move on. But being willing to go against the conventional grain is the most important thing. So willing to take risks. And then, yeah. And in this market, though, it just seems so volatile. You know, you're you're afraid to take those risks. You just want to whatever money you make, you just want to throw it in the bank. Well, I think the best investors are not doing that. They see this as a great buying opportunity, a once in a generation buying opportunity, because you're going to buy things at 30 percent lower than they were just a couple months ago. Wow. That's an interesting point. Ed Cox or Judge Weinberg. No, I think uh, Mr. Rubenstein is absolutely correct. I think this is a, a buying opportunity. I think I'm I'm not I'm just a humble lawyer, but it seems to me when you can buy cheaper and you're buying for the long run, you're investing for the long run. That's why I tell my children just keep buying, put it in a, in a mutual fund and keep buying. Right, because what interest dollar are you accumulating in the dollar bank? Cost a- and dollar cost and the dollar cost averaging, and you have to remember you have inflation going crazy. Actually, Your Honor, that raises a good question for David. Do lawyers make good investors, David? <laughs> Lawyers, um, when they're practicing law, are not great investors. If yeah. lawyers get out of the practice of law and learn how to be investors, they can be very good. Yeah. But uh, as a general rule of thumb, if you're going to be good at something, you have to do it pretty much full time. Try to do it part time. 
The most common mistake that the average person, lawyers or doctors or dentists make is when the markets are going up, they rush in. And when the markets are going down, they rush out. And that's not the right thing to do. Well, uh, tell us how you, the son of a Baltimore postal worker, built one of the great private equity firms and in the in Washington, D.C., no less, not in New York. How did you do it? Um, a lot of luck. I worked in the White House for President Carter. I went back and practiced law in Washington. I wasn't good at it. So if you're not good at something, you don't love it. You got to do something that you're good at and you and you love and, and you have to find something you really love, love doing. And I, I built the firm because I I was in Washington at the time. And I, I thought I, I if I moved to New York, people wouldn't take me seriously because I hadn't been an investment banker. But in Washington, I could recruit former government people like Jim Baker to join. And that gave us a lot of credibility. David Rubenstein, again, you have a new book out. It's called How to Invest Masters on the Craft. How do you know what to invest in? I'm I'm the type of person, I don't don't know the markets. I'm still fairly young. I'm afraid, you know, I'm not making like all this money. And so I want to hold on to it. How do you know what to invest in? Because like you said, you do have to have some sort of passion for whatever you are investing in. For the average person, and you might be the average person who is not an investment professional, the best thing to do is to get somebody who manages your money, you put it in a fund or some money manager who really is paying attention. And this is their full-time profession. And you can pick the best funds by looking at the track record of the fund, who's managing, how much money the people who are managing the fund are putting in, and, and things like that. But the, the average person should not be holding down a job and trying to pick stocks or bonds because you're not going to do very well. You're not going to beat the market averages. Just beating the market averages is very, very difficult, even for the best investment professionals. For the average person, not really likely to happen. So pick good money managers and give them time to make their uh, magic work. They're not going to be able to do it overnight. Mr. Rubenstein, you're, uh, you're much, much more than uh – a money manager and investment advisor, which you are is, is you're a big uh, thinker. You're almost a renaissance man. You have the TV show. We talk about major issues. You're a great philanthropic uh, personality. But where do you see this? Is, these are dangerous and divisive times in America today. Where do you see the future of America, sir? Well, it was worse than the Civil War. We lost 3% of our population. Members of Congress were hitting each other on the head during that time. We're not quite there yet. It's not a good situation, uh, honestly, and I think the the elections that are coming up in a couple days are probably going to exacerbate the problem because I suspect we'll have a divided government, and that can make it even worse. So I wish I could give you good news, but I I think it's going to be a difficult time for the next couple of years. Isn't that what the founding fathers built, though, Uh, a a divided government? Didn't Madison purposely do it with our, our, our Constitution that it would end up that way? Well. No, I don't think anybody anticipated this. They also they didn't anticipate political parties at the time. But no. think about it. In the founding fathers, when they came along, we only had three million people in the country. And we got George Washington. Uh, we got uh, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, Benjamin Franklin. Now we have 330 million people. And what do we have? And the world, the great people and the world, leaders. Yeah. And a world power, too. And back then we were <laughs> we were very much right. on the defensive and uh, worried about uh, the great powers, England and France. It was a different situation. We, we have. Well, the country has problems. There's no doubt about it. Of course, the country always has some problems. But we have 50 million people that have come to this country as immigrants and they're not leaving the country. Very few people ever leave the country. So while we have lots of problems, people are still rushing to join this country and to try to be citizens of it. So. Despite all our problems, we were better than many of the alternatives or most of the alternatives. Absolutely. We are still and always will be the greatest country in the world. Thank you so much, David Rubenstein. My pleasure. Thank you.
your again your book is how to invest masters on the craft and where can we find your book amazon or any bookstore all right well thank you so much sir thank and come you. back anytime thank you bye now on the line with us we have a gordon g chang he's the author of the coming collapse of china and the great u.s china tech war and he's just a brilliant guy all the way around you could follow him on twitter at gordon g chang and i'm just looking at your twitter now gordon chang and it says china's regime wants to take away your right to vote so show those ccp can i say bastards well i just said it uh that we will defend our democracy so we keep we keep hearing the republic i mean we keep hearing the democrats saying that the republicans want to take people's rights away to vote but you're telling us it's actually the chinese communist party tell us all about it Well, Xi Jinping, the Chinese ruler who gained almost complete control over the party last month, um, believes in the notion of the mandate of heaven over Tianxia, or all under heaven. And he's been pushing the notion that China is the only legitimate state in the world, which makes the U.S., by the way, a colony. But it's more than just planet Earth that he wants, because since 2018, his officials have been talking about the moon and Mars as sovereign Chinese territory. So he's the most ambitious aggressor in history. And we know what he's done to the Uyghurs, the Tibetans, the Christians, and Chinese people in general. That's really what he has in store for us, Lydia. Wow, that is frightening. That's Gordon, it's Richard Warmberg. I read in today's Wall Street Journal that they're now talking about having a summit between uh, Xi and uh, and Biden. And what do you think about the, the prospects for the United States in that kind of summit when Biden is not up to the game? I don't think, you know, certainly Biden is not up to the game, Um, but whether he was at full 100 percent mental capacity or at 50, where he appears to be, I don't think we should be talking to China at this particular moment. Um, This is uh, referring to the sidelines of the G20, which will be held in Bali and Indonesia uh, this month. The problem here is that we have been talking to China for a half century. They know exactly what we expect, what the world expects. We know that they have used dialogue to stall. um, And China right now is engaged in some very dangerous activity. And the most important thing for us is not to have this dialogue, which is really what we've been doing for a very long time, but to start imposing some costs on China for, uh, among other things, spreading COVID-19, backing the fentanyl gangs, stealing intellectual property to the tune of, what, half a trillion dollars a year. Um, You know, what more can we say to China? Uh, Gordon, Ed Cox here. Well, who do you talk to? There's only one person you can talk to. Everyone else, as the Congress uh, proved at the end, they're all yes people, right? That's right. Um, In the past, the Politburo Standing Committee of the party, which is the highest decision-making body in China, was actually balanced among the various factions at the party. Now um, we have seen what's now called a war cabinet by many. In other words, the Politburo Standing Committee is now Xi Jinping plus six loyalists. So there are no dissenting voices. And indeed, um, people from other factions, including the current premier of the country, the guy who's running the central government, um, he's not even included on the central committee anymore, so he cannot be uh, premier. So we have seen Xi Jinping take over everything, uh, and um, you know he does does control China. But so the he, problem is, go, go ahead. The the problem is that he's in no mood to talk in good faith. So yeah, we can have dialogue with him, but it's not going to further our interests or the interests of the international community. Well, even when Mao was running the country, sort of like Xi was way back when. 
He had Zhou Enlai, who was a little bit different. You had Liu Shaoqi, who took power away from Mao after the Great Leap Forward. You had different power centers there to a certain extent. Now you don't have it any longer. What does that mean for this advanced economy, China now going forward? And can they really keep it going? That's a really great question. Um, Xi Jinping reveres Mao Zedong, and we have seen him adopt Mao-like policies. But up to now, he has not been able to actually accomplish what he has set out because of those other factions that he had to share power with. Now that he doesn't have to share power, um, we don't know exactly how far he's going to go. And this could be something. We have seen indications, for instance, um, that his draconian zero COVID policies are being applied with even more relentlessness. And this is causing problems in Chinese society where people are actually openly defying the government now because they've just had enough of these measures. Um, Whether Xi Jinping will double down or whether he'll back away is going to be a critical question. The markets think he's going to back away because we've seen $1 trillion in value added to Chinese stocks this week because of rumors, which have been officially denied, by the way, that he will um, go to something um, a little bit less draconian. Uh, Gordon Chang, you said something very interesting once on, uh, well, you say a lot of interesting things, but you said something that really stuck with me regarding the fentanyl crisis. We hear everybody talking about we need more enforcement. We need border patrol. We need to bomb the Mexican drug cartels. But it was you who talked about a way to get right to the source about how President Biden could actually get, you know, end this crisis once and for all. Can you share that with us? And of course, it has to do with diplomacy and it has to do with the Chinese Communist Party, because we all know that nobody in under the Chinese rule does anything without the blessing of President Xi Jinping. That's right. Xi Jinping has moved to a full totalitarian, full surveillance state or very close to it which means that these fentanyl gangs, which are large, well-organized, international in scope, which use the Chinese banking system to launder their profits, um, the Communist Party fully backs fentanyl. So we should not consider that the the Chinese gangs are the real culprits here. The real culprit is the Communist Party. There are a lot of things that we could do, Lydia, but one of them is because this money is going through the big Chinese banks, we could apply Section 311 of the Patriot Act and declare them to these Chinese banks to be a primary money laundering concern. And that means that no bank in New York could actually maintain correspondent banking relationships with them. And that's a very dry way of saying that these big banks could no longer conduct transactions in dollars. That means that these banks would be disconnected from the global financial system. And Xi Jinping would have to come to the United States and start begging uh, for President Biden to um, put these banks back onto the system. Now, this would also have a very beneficial effect with regard to North Korea, because these Chinese banks have also been handling North Korea's money um, and, you know, no money, no missile launches. So there's a lot of things that we can do if we had a little bit of political will and start enforcing U.S. laws, because, Lydia, if I may say one more thing. Absolutely. We did not allow Pablo Escobar to launder money through New York. So why are we allowing um, even more dangerous criminals in China to do the same thing? 
That's an excellent, excellent point. I, excellent point. I, maybe you can, uh, we can get maybe Governor Patterson to get uh, Biden's number to Gordon Chang and maybe talk some sense into him or something like that. But thank you so much, Gordon Chang, for always your wisdom and insight. And we got to go to a hard break. Thank you so much. This is the Cats at Night show. Keep it right here. Dr. Mark Siegel coming up. Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Welcome back to Cats at Night, the John Katz Matiti show. And uh, we got a great studio in, in house. We've got Ed Cox. We got Judge Weinberg. John Katz Matidis, are you still on the line somewhere? Well, from 3,000 miles away, I'm on the line. There you go. And I'm Lydia Serrani. And on the line with us right now, we have Dr. Mark Siegel. How are you, Dr. Siegel? I'm great. I'm tracking Dr. I'm tracking I'm tracking John Casamatidis. He's traveling a lot lately, so I'm making sure that he drinks a lot of water on those planes and that he doesn't sit too long in one place. So I'm I'm keeping an eye on him. I want I want him to bring us all back a gift. Absolutely. I was just reading something in the New York Times, Florida bans doctors from providing gender affirming treatments to minors. So, of course, the New York Times is painting this as some horrible thing. But can you explain to our listeners what this actually means, what gender-affirming care is actually for for children? Well, I can't tell you, talk to you too much about this because I'm actually currently doing a report on it for Fox. And so I don't want to give away my headlines. But basically, let's just say that we need a, a responsible situation here where things aren't done to uh, – to young teens or preteens prematurely that they then later regret. There is a study out that shows that even gender-affirming surgery is something that, you know, maybe temporarily or or more alleviates depression. But that's a very controversial study. And my view is doctors should not be doing things like this. I think we have to look at what the long-term health impact is on doing something to a very young person. We're in a society right now, and everyone on this panel on the show probably agrees, where this has become so mainstream that 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 it's, it's, we're losing sight of the fact that it's actually quite unusual. So it's it's acceptable from a medical point of view. Someone feels that they have gender dysphoria. They're not relating to their particular gender. But that doesn't mean that a doctor swoops in and does a mastectomy. That's what I absolutely object to. And in terms of puberty blockers, their potential long-term impact hasn't been that well studied. Well, doctor, it's, it's Richard Weinberg. I have to tell you, I'm very concerned that a lot of these states are doing this and they're blocking parents from being involved in the decision-making process and even counseling their own children. What do you say about that? Well, in that? California, they can strip you of your parental rights if you deny your child I mean, a mastectomy or to cut off their private you can, parts. No, you, deny them rights, well, you, they can prosecute you. Listen, Judge, I agree with you totally on the, your concern on that, but I would add another piece of this, which is that there's some situations where the parents are the ones superimposing their will or you know their sense of political correctness. And I, I, I'm concerned about both things. Well I think the doctor has to play a role. We have a, you know, we throw out around the term Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. But I think, I think we have to take a careful look about what the role of a doctor is. And a doctor should have very careful guidelines on what they're comfortable doing. What's the therapeutics here? I, I, I find it very disturbing because the key here is how young the person is. Dr. Ed Cox here, a more general question. You walk into, look at the, about to walk into a store. You have a sign. Put on your mask, da, 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 da. And you go in, no one has a mask on. Mm-hmm. Suddenly people are not concerned about COVID any longer. Should they be? 
Well, the, first of all, that hypocrisy of wear a mask signs and nobody wearing them, especially the government, you know, that, all of the, all of the uh, ludicrous uh, analysis we've done of people on a microphone taking their mask off, putting their mask on, all of that stuff made it, made it ludicrousness about it. But uh, you asked a different question, which is whether COVID is over. I think COVID as an oppressive force in our lives is over. COVID as a melodramatic way of ridiculing people or a dogmatic assessment, or that's over. As a virus, it's still around. But, you know, I've been waiting for, for over a year now for it to become a virus the way flu is or the way RSV is. And I think we're heading towards that, where it's something for me to manage medically rather than for some politician to be talking about at a podium. Doctor, are we ever going to know the real origins of uh, the COVID crisis? I think what we're going to know, is, and this is, this is so important, we're going to know that China hides things. We're going to know... That, they, that they're doing experiments on bat coronaviruses in labs over there. We're going to know that they lied about when this actually started and that they didn't give a damn about it spreading around to Europe. We're going to know that. And we're going to know that there's a very good chance that at least part of the life of this virus occurred in a lab. I mean, it, it's not an either-or thing. And we're going to know that we better watch what we allow people to do in terms of playing with viruses internationally. We you have that Boston University problem a, right now. That? Boston University is playing with uh, the viruses now. And North Carolina, Ralph Barrick's lab in North Carolina. You know, we're part, we've created an international consortium of, of scientists playing with viruses, and I'm damn worried about it, and I, and I don't approve of it. And, and it's way, all, a lot of it going on outside China. And forget about even just the physical side effects or a lot of mental side effects to the pandemic. I, I, just the other day, I saw a, like a three-year-old still wearing a mask outside, crossing the street, and the parent didn't have one on. And I'm like, what are you doing to your kid? My child, she's five years old, and the teacher was telling me so many of the kids are having speech delays or so many issues. They don't know how to behave around other kids because there is that... That, uh, you know, kids learn by playing. They learn by associating with one another. And they've been deprived of that for two years. And I also don't think it's a coincidence that we're seeing so many teenagers completely out of control doing the carjackings, the drug dealings, the shootings, because they've been out of school and they're indifferent to even human life at this point. Socialization, very important. And the biggest tragedy there was there was never any evidence that closing schools would do anything other than cause, especially poor people, to, to be together more and spread more virus, spread more virus in the community than in the school. And you're absolutely right about the socialization issue. And I couldn't believe the governor of New York saying, oh, on Thanksgiving, on, on, on Halloween, go around wearing those masks that are painted up. And I thought those are the ones that work to prevent absolutely nothing. They're porous. Right. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Mark Siegel, thank you as always. We're looking forward to you coming in studio very soon. When are you coming in? As soon as John is back, I'm back. I'm waiting for him to come with my gift and I'll be there. There you go. <laughs> All right, John, are you there? I'm here. Okay, well, we're going to say so. Judge Weinberg, thank you so much. Ed Cox, thank you so much. I'm Lydia Serrani and John Katzmatidis. What do we stand it, for? I'll give it to you now. What do we stand for? Truth, Truth, justice, justice and, and the American, American way. way. God bless New York. God bless America. And on Sunday, we change our clocks back. And on Tuesday, we take our country back. It's Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. 
This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 